Good morning, family. It's good to see you here this morning. Coronavirus free. I'm just, yeah, yeah. Okay, true story. Because we don't really know. We're just assuming that when you come forward to take communion this morning that you're coronavirus free and your hands are clean and you're not double dipping and all those good things. Um, it just would not surprise me and if, if an email came down or a word came along that schools were here on island were altered or public gather, or even for those of you who live off base that you could go to home and work and that kind of thing, but other gatherings would be restricted. In the meantime, well, that's not the case. As long as you guys are going to work and your kids are going to school, we will continue to gather here, but we'll use wisdom and prudence, of course, uh, moving forward. But as long as the normal rhythms of this island press on, uh, we will press on in our, our normal rhythms as well. Let's pray, and we'll get to work this morning. Father, we thank you for your grace. Pray that as we spend time in your word this morning, that by your grace and through your spirit, you would give us life according to your word. Father, we pray that you would increase our affections for Jesus, that you would strengthen our allegiances to Jesus. Father, for those hearts that are just really weary and heavy laden, just burdened, uh, even breaking this morning, I pray that you would give renewed hope and joy and peace in Christ. Father, for those hearts that have not yet been made alive in the gospel, I pray that you would, you would give grace through your spirit this morning. And Father, I pray that as we spend time in your word, our eyes would, would be taken off of ourselves and that we would look to Christ and in so doing, we would find strength and joy and peace as we press into another week, living not by sight, but by faith. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So today we begin a new series exploring 1 Corinthians, one of Paul's letters to the church in the city of Corinth. Our series theme is this, gospel formed, becoming who we are, a united family in a fractured city. Corinth was a fractured city. I mean, you wouldn't know it if you were just staying there for a fun-filled weekend on a 72 and you were just there to, uh, to take in the sights and enjoy the city. But if you live there, you would know all the beauty and all the bustle on the surface only served to veil the brokenness in the heart of the city. One second century writer blogged, well, he didn't blog, but he wrote, about the fractures in Corinth's culture this way. He wrote, this is what he said about Corinth. He just spent a little time there on like this investigative journalist trip, and this is what he wrote. He's like, I learned in a short time the nauseating behavior of the rich and the misery of the poor. That was Corinth. It was a fractured city. Uh, here's a map. Corinth is a seaport city. It still is. It's located between uh, Peloponnesus and mainland Greece. It flourished as a Greek city-state until it was destroyed by Rome in 144 BC. And then 100 years after its destruction, Julius Caesar refounded Corinth as a Roman colony. Caesar populated the city with freedmen, and get this, uh, well, freedmen were Rome's lowest social class, like literally their name, they, they had been set free from slavery and they kind of lived a working existence in the city. So they were the working class that you wouldn't associate with. The city was populated with freedmen and um, veterans and sailors. Like, no joke. You got out of the armed services and Corinth was your home. So, like, Corinth's first zip code was DD, I looked this up, is DD214. That's where that comes from. Um, and I told you it was a fractured city, right? It was populated by, by veterans and sailors. Like, that's, that's Corinth. That's Corinth. The city rapidly rose in status from newfound colony to global city. As you can see on the map, the city controlled two harbors, two very strategic harbors. And since it was so dangerous to sail around the rocky coastline, most ships would dock on one side of Corinth, and then they would move their cargo or the entire ship itself. They'd pave the road, they had all the gear to make this happen, and they would just move the cargo or the entire ship itself across land to the opposite port and go on their merry way. So Corinth became the hub of global logistics. And as such, 
This city is where cultures from the West and the East came together not only for work, but for play. Corinth maintained her Greek roots in religion, philosophy, and architecture, and the arts. But from the West, Corinth was radically reshaped by Roman law, culture, and religion. And from the East, she received strong Asian and Jewish cultural influence as well. So Corinth was the OG melting pot. Like before we even thought of that for ourselves, that is what they they were, kind of. Because while Corinth was diverse in population... She was also divided. She was fractured along every imaginable social line. Corinth was Vegas at the nighttime. It was Seattle during the, the daytime. It was a hipster town. Um, and it had all the hustle and new, of New York and L.A. just mashed together. Like that's Corinth, if you can imagine visiting that place. The culture and the values of Corinth were just like those of any modern-day city. The city valued competitive individualism, self-sufficiency, personal autonomy, and personal rights. So you are free to be you and do you. Like, Corinth is us. That's that's what we're talking about. Materialism could have been its own religion. Uh, Sexual fulfillment could have been its own religion. It was, uh, they they were all about their sexual freedom and sexual identity and finding ultimate meaning and purpose through sexual fulfillment. It could have been religions. You had to be aggressively for yourself if you were going to succeed in a thriving city like Corinth, just like any of our big cities. Uh, Historian Wayne Meeks observes that life in Corinth was all about three things, personal power, personal status, and workplace prestige. As for the power, you just had to prove your capacity for achieving personal goals in a competitive social system. As for status, Social climbing was a major preoccupation. You had to have those followers. You had to have influence. And as as for workplace prestige, you just had to prove that you were a winner at work or at least be able to project yourself publicly in order to live successfully and climb uh, the social ladder in Corinth. And we don't have to act like we don't know what that means. You've all written a fit rep or an eval of yourself. That's all we're talking about. Like just projecting yourself a certain way so that you're made to look, can we just say it, better than you actually are? All right, just now that we all feel the same way about fit reps and evals. Another historian observed this. Um, This is crazy. Um, The parallels between their culture and our own are are stunning. Here's what they wrote. This is what this this person wrote. He said, Corinth was a city where public boasting and self-promotion had become an art form. In such a culture, a person's sense of worth is based on recognition by others of one's self-accomplishment. That's where we find our worth in our culture too. Worth is based on other people people's perceptions of who you are and what you've done, whether those perceptions are real or not. And so in Paul's time, many in Corinth were already suffering from a self-made person escapes humble origin syndrome. Let me just say that again. Uh, This guy wrote this. He said, in Paul's time, when this letter was written, residents of Corinth were already suffering from a a self-made person escapes humble origin syndromes. Again, that that is our culture. Uh, Did you know that archaeology has revealed that Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and every other social media platform can trace their roots back to Corinth? Uh, Well, obviously, they didn't have the internet, and they didn't have electricity. But listen, for real, for real, those who had means, they had some money, in Corinth, they would have been called a patron, like the social class of patrons. And patrons would front the cash to have a small monument basically a polished stone screen, if you will. I mean, that's what we're talking about, screens. They would front the cash to have these screens inscribed with their accomplishments, you know, what they'd done and who they were and where they'd visited and how they'd benefited society. They would pay to have these these stones inscribed and placed as strategic points around the city for, get this, maximum viewership. Like, tell me that's not the birthplace of social media. Some of these, you don't have to take my word for it. They've actually survived. You can, not right now, you can't buy a ticket to Corinth because you'll get coronavirus. But normally you could fly to Corinth and you can still see these stones. Like you can go to museums and see these. And if you can read some of the original languages or get a a translator, they just describe the amazing accomplishments of people, the people who paid to have the stones posted. Um, 
They would be posted around the city as a means of self-promotion and self-congratulations for the purpose of gaining increased prestige and boosting followership. That's Corinth. So on the surface, the people of Corinth appeared to be flourishing. That's what it looked like and that's what it felt like. But at the heart, the city and her people were fracturing, just falling apart, just like our culture. And so in kindness, God sends Paul to this fractured city full of breaking people with the good news of the gospel. And around AD 50, Paul planted a church in the city of Corinth. He spent a year and a half here making sure the church was established before he moved on. You can read about that in Acts 18. And this church was just as diverse as the city itself. Just from reading the letter, if all we do is take the names out of the letter as we read it, we know that the church was comprised of people from the West, Romans. We know that it's comprised also of people from the East, Asians and Jews. And we also know from the names that there were people who were just born and raised, like their people had always been in Corinth, like the Greeks. It was a diverse church. We know some of them were wealthy. Some of them were the patrons who were boosting and posting themselves all over the city. We know that. They were positioning for influence and power, not just outside of the church, but inside of the church. But many of the church members, most of them were working class or poor. The church was diverse, different nationalities, ethnicities, financial classes, social classes, and and cultural classes. All the service branches, all the O's, all the E's, right? This is the church in Corinth. But sadly, just like the city of Corinth, while the church was diverse, a good thing, she was divided, a bad thing. Uh, She was divided. How would we we explain this? Uh, We don't do this here, but an example of that division would be they had a missional community set up for every demographic. Rather than allowing the missional communities to be melting pots themselves, they had a missional community for the the senior officers, and they had a small group for the, the junior officers, and they had one for the enlisted junior and senior, and they had those for, well, the Air Force has to have their own different quality of life issue going on, and then they had one for everybody else, right? They, they broke the church up by age and gender and class. It was divided. But that wasn't our only problem. The church in Corinth was seemingly shaped and influenced more by the cultural values of her city than she was by the values of the gospel. She was shaped more by the voices of the culture than she was by the voice of Jesus. In fact, the culture of this church was almost indistinguishable from the culture of this fractured city. What does that look like? Well, it looks like if we are influenced more by the... mm, Without picking on anybody, the Jordan Petersons or the Joe Rogans of our day, their day, then we are shaped by the voice of Jesus. That's, that's part of the way that happens. And that was happening for them. Not that the voices of Joe Rogan or Jordan Peterson are bad. They're, they're good and you should listen to people like that. However, if those are the voices that are shaping your life and they're drowning out the voice of Jesus, that's where we get into trouble and that's what was happening here. So these realities, the division and the fact that their culture was indistinguishable from the city, these realities completely undermine the purpose of Jesus' church in the city because the church, God's family, exists to display the beauty of the gospel to a broken people. That's why we exist. The church exists to display the faithfulness of Christ to a fractured city. But this church was divided, just like the city. This church was fracturing because she was shaped by the, the, the culture and not the gospel. And so she had nothing beautiful to display to a broken city and a breaking people. That is absolutely tragic. And that is why we have the letter of 1 Corinthians. That's why we have that letter today. Sometime after Paul left, the young church reached out for help. They're like, hey, Paul, we need... We need help. Not everybody in the church acknowledged that, but enough of them to write a letter and send it to Paul and be like, hey, we're jacked up. Please help us out. But Paul had already heard about it. It's not just that he received a letter. There were actually messengers that were sent from Corinth to Paul to, to personally tell him how bad it was getting. So Paul already knew. So he'd received reports. He'd received a letter. He knew the church in Corinth had serious problems. And what we know as 1 Corinthians in the Bible... I, if, if you didn't know this, it's not actually the first letter that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. Unfortunately, we don't have any surviving copies of the letter that precede 1 Corinthians. But in 1 Corinthians, we'll see it in a couple weeks, Paul refers to the letter that, guys, I already wrote to you about this, but I'm going to write again and explain it this way. So there's a letter, that's 1 Corinthians, so our 1 Corinthians is really second, and second would be third, okay? But um, man, Paul was working hard to help them out. Here's Paul's aim in the letter. 
We can take the, the map down, guys. Thanks for putting that up. That was helpful. Here's, here's Paul's aim for the letter. He wanted them as a church to be gospel-formed, not culture-formed. He wanted them to become who God said that they already were. He wanted them to grow into this reality so that they would be a united family in a fractured city. Yes, for their good, but not ultimately for their good, for God's fame and for the good of the people in the city who were broken and needed to see the beauty of the gospel. This is why Paul writes the letter. It's the same purpose for us today. We should begin our study of 1 Corinthians simply by asking this question. Are we increasingly gospel-formed or are we increasingly culturally formed? Formed more by the voices of our culture or more by the voices of Jesus? Are we becoming who God says that we are as his kids or are we increasingly becoming what all the cultural voices around us say? What, it can't be both. It's only one or the other. So we're going to see these three statements today as we begin to unpack chapter one. Here they are. Becoming who we are begins with knowing and living from who our Father says that we are. Becoming who we are begins with knowing and living from who our Father says that we are. Number two, becoming who we are begins with looking to Jesus as our source, our sustainer, and our Savior. And number three, becoming who we are begins with uniting around Jesus, not dividing around favorite people. Uh, Let's begin by reading verses one to three, and um, we will unpack those ideas in order. So first, becoming who we are begins with knowing and living from who our Father says that we are. Verse, Verse one, Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes to the church of God that is in Corinth. To those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So we begin to answer this question, who are we from these opening lines? Because one of the problems for the church in Corinth and one of, our, one, of, one of the problems that we encounter for ourselves all the time is that their view of themselves and our view of ourselves is still shaped more by the culture than, than it is by the gospel. So Paul's going to help them out with this. And as he does so first, he actually is already teaching them through the way that he introduces himself. Check this out. So Paul, Paul says of himself, I'm called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. Two things here. Paul says this. He does what he does vocationally. What's his vocation? He's an apostle by the will of God. Paul isn't just saying this to introduce himself. He's saying this to help us learn how to view ourselves as followers of Jesus. So for example, uh, I am a pastor. That's not my identity. That's not who I am as a person. That is what God has called me to vocationally. It's what I do for my work. And I am that by the will of God. So how about you? Are you a stay-at-home mom? Are you a homeschool parent? Are you a doula? I know we got lots of doulas out there. For whatever reason, over the course of this last year, I feel like 50% of our church family became doulas. So that's cool. Lots of doulas out there. Are you a Marine, a soldier, airman, sailor? Are you a teacher? Whatever capacity you lead in, did you receive a recent promotion? Are you getting out either voluntarily or because you have to? Look, guys, here's our starting point. We are what we are by the will of God. That's what Paul is saying of himself. And in saying it of himself, he's helping those of us who are younger Christians grow into this understanding that we are who we are by the will of our Father. So this is our starting point as followers of Jesus. We are called by the will of God. Paul was called to be an apostle. An apostle, that word just means a sent one or a messenger. Um, Back then, it was a messenger who had a a special authority from Jesus. So if you hear people throwing that title around today, all the apostles died a long time ago. There are no surviving apostles who can walk up to you and claim a special authority from Jesus. That resides in the word for us. There are some people who can have an apostolic gifting, meaning just that they, they go places on Jesus' behalf where the gospel does not exist or the church does not already exist, and, and they can start new things where they don't already exist. We would look at that and say, okay, that's, that's kind of like an apostolic gifting, but uh, there are no longer any apostles with that special authority. But this is who Paul was, 
called to be an apostle, on, um, a, a messenger on behalf of Jesus Christ. And here's the next lens that we need to drop into our gospel-shaded glasses, if you will, in order to begin viewing ourselves correctly. Paul said, I am who I am. I work where I work. This is key, on behalf of Christ, on behalf of Jesus. So I represent him wherever he sends me and in whatever capacity he sends me. So guys, if you are a follower of Jesus, when you go to work tomorrow morning, if, you, if your work is at home and you stay there, or if your work is somewhere away from home, you go there, you exist there on behalf of Christ. That's radically countercultural because the culture of Corinth would say you exist here for yourself in your own self-promotion. The gospel says to you, no, Jesus created you and gave you life. You exist for his promotion, for his fame, and for the good of people around you. It's radically countercultural and radically better. So we represent him wherever he sends us. One of Corinth's cultural values was self-promotion. And sadly, that had infected the church as well. And so this is one way that Paul reminds us as followers of Jesus that we no longer live for self-promotion. Our platform, whatever your platform is, is given to you by the will of God on behalf of Jesus for his fame, not my own, and for the good of others. So here's the question we should ask ourselves. What's my platform? What is the platform that you've been given? Every one of you have a platform. Every one of you. So what is our platform? And then we rehearse the gospel and remind ourselves that the Father gave this platform to me specifically to represent Jesus for the good of others, for his glory, and not for mine. So let's ask this this question. Are we increasingly becoming who the Father says that we are in this capacity? And who are we? Paul continues by introducing Sosthenes, and he calls him our brother. And I know that we say this all the time here, but here is another reminder that the Father adopts us into a family. The language that Paul uses about Sosthenes reminds us that the church isn't like a family. The church is a family. It's God's family. So when Paul writes to the church of God that is in Corinth, we can read that as to the family of God that is in Corinth, to the family of God that is in Okinawa. We are brothers and sisters. And here's another lens that needs to drop into our glasses. They were God's family, check this out, in Corinth, in, in the broken city. We, as God's people, are meant to be in whatever fractured city he calls us to, in it, like in the city, in the brokenness, in the fracturing, as ambassadors, as representatives, building relationships with people, living for our Father's fame and the good of the city and her people, because we have something beautiful to display, not in and of ourselves, but in the gospel and in the person of Jesus. In order to display this beauty, we have to be in the brokenness. Not of it, not shaped by it, but not outside of it either, like many Christian communities are tempted to do. Not withdrawing from the brokenness, but pressing into it, into your neighborhood and into your workplace, into the brokenness, into the fractures for their good and for Jesus' fame. So who are we? Paul drops another lens into our gospel-shaded glasses. He says, we are those sanctified in Christ, meaning, big word, all sanctified means is set apart. We are set apart. So we are set apart in Jesus for his fame, for his purposes. We are set apart in Jesus for his purposes. Before Jesus, I existed for my own purposes. Now in Christ, I exist for his purposes, specifically the rescue of those who are not yet adopted into our family. And we are set apart to receive acceptance and affirmation from the Father as sons and daughters. Sanctified simply means set apart for Jesus' purposes. That's who we are, guys. Who are we? We are set apart for the purposes of Jesus. That's who we are as a family. And he says we are called to be saints together. I know this is hard for some of us to accept, especially depending on your background. Perhaps if you're from a Catholic background where the the title saints is reserved for dead people who are venerated because they, um, in death, have... Have, there can be miracles that are attributed to them, and they lived a pretty good life too. So taken together, now that person's a saint. But as we read the New Testament, look, I mean, look, it says it right here, to the church of God that is in Corinth, these are living people. And once we begin exploring Corinth, you'll realize they're living really messed up people, not saintly at all. But what does Jesus call them? You're my saints. Like this is who they are right now. 
but you're like, man, John, I don't feel very saintly this morning. Well, you're in, you're in good company. And if you do feel saintly, like, let's have that conversation lady, cause, later because I can gently help you that maybe you shouldn't feel that saintly in and of yourself. Because we're not. We're not. But we are saints, God's holy people in Jesus because of Jesus. Not because we're saintly, but because Jesus was the perfect saint on our behalf. We are accepted in him, and we are made this in him. So as Christians, there's no pressure to earn the title saint. There's no pressure to live a certain way so our dad will look at us and be like, all right, you made it. You were just a Christian, but now you're a saint. We are already accepted in Jesus, so we don't live to earn this. We live from this title. It's who we are, and we live into this title. We grow up into it. And this is how the Father views you this morning. You need to know this, especially if you've had a a, a miserable week of failing. His commitment to you as his son or his daughter is that he will use all of your life to help you grow into this identity by his grace and through the work of the Spirit in your life. Paul says this is the Father's will for every member of his family around the world. He said, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Like That's a global statement for all God's kids. So what is your Father's will for you this morning and for every member of our family? That we would see and believe who he says we are in Jesus and then live from that identity. So I've got nothing to earn. You, friend, have nothing to prove in Christ. You do have everything to gain in him, and you have everything to live for in him. And what a high and worthy calling. Like the gospel offers us, guys, something that is far better and more beautiful than any of the voices in our culture can offer us. You have the unique privilege to pour yourself out for this Jesus who created you and gave you life. You have the unique privilege to pour your life out living for his fame and the good of other people. That is a beautiful, beautiful gift that we don't deserve. And we can't miss that Paul wrote, did you see those two words right together, right next to each other, saints together? Just another reminder, guys, there are no solo saints. I'm sorry. There are no solo saints. Saints share life with the family. It's a shared life. And the introduction concludes with a reminder that we live out of this identity and into this identity, not in our own strength, but in the grace and peace which comes from the Father through Jesus. So who are we? We are a family called by the will of God, living on behalf of Christ, set apart to be his saints together. That's who we are when we get up to go to work tomorrow morning, no matter where you go. So let's just ask ourselves this question, are we becoming who the Father says that we are? In order to become who we are, that becoming begins with knowing and living into this gospel-shaped identity. Let's keep pressing. Paul now wants to point us to Jesus, who is our source, sustainer, and savior, beginning in verse 4. Paul says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way... You were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, Jesus, will sustain you to the end. Check this out. Guiltless. That's good news. That's really good news. He will sustain you till the end, guiltless, in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, when Jesus returns to judge. If you are in Christ, you will be found to be guiltless. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Did you notice, I should have asked you this before we read, did you notice in that whole paragraph, there's only one thing that we are asked to do and somebody else is doing everything else that's in there? Did you see what we are asked to do? Did you see it? What is it? Yeah, I totally should have asked before we read. That's my bad. Just one thing. Wait. That's it. All the other actions in this paragraph are being done by God himself. We'll unpack the waiting on Jesus in a minute, but first let's look at what Paul says God does on our behalf. First, he gives us grace in Jesus. It says, by the grace of God, we are this, right? By the grace, by the grace means gift. So by the gift of God, I haven't done anything to deserve this. By the grace of God, we are what we are. Paul says this of himself later in the letter. Some of you guys are familiar with this. It's 1 Corinthians 15.10. He says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. 
That's a really good life maxim right there. By the grace of God, I am what I am. What that means is this. The Father gives us our identity as people in Jesus. You don't earn it. You don't build it. You don't discover it. You don't craft it. You don't have to create it. It's already created for you in Christ, and it's a gift to you. You only know your true self when you are in Jesus. Outside of Jesus, it is a false self that you know. Your true self is found in Christ. By His grace, we are what we are. What else has He done for us? It says we are enriched in Him, in Jesus, in all speech, in all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed among you. In other words, even just as the gospel was first taking root in our hearts and beginning to transform our lives, the Father had already given us a brand new way of speaking about life and ourselves and our culture. It's a gospel-shaped language which changes everything, and he gives us a new way of thinking, a new way of viewing life and myself through the mind and the eyes of Christ, which is ours through the Spirit, uh, through the Word. We are given the mind of Christ. This is really good news for us because outside of Christ, the way we view ourselves and the way we view our world is through our own broken way of thinking and seeing. Becoming who we are begins with learning to speak and think in these ways with a gospel lens and a gospel filter through the eyes and the mind of Jesus. Guys, this is a life-giving gift that the Father gives to His children. He opens our eyes, and for the first time in the gospel, we see clearly, we hear accurately, we think truthfully, and we can see ourselves in reality. It's a life-giving gift. The Father is so generous to us. In fact, He says this, Paul says, you, here's how generous He is, you are not lacking in any gift But we do need to notice something about that statement because we read that and we're like, oh, sweet. I have every gift I need for life. Like, I'm good. Is that what it says? It's not what it says. If you're a grammar nerd, you know what the you in there is. It's not singular. He's not talking to you. He has not given you everything you need, all the gifts. Who's he giving them to? The family. He's given them to the family. It's a plural you. The family is not lacking in any gift. We in and of ourselves are not self-sufficient. Jesus, we know from Ephesians, gave you a gift when you were adopted into the family. And it's a beautiful gift to be poured out for his fame and for the good of other people. But it's a gift or two or three. It's a clustering of gifts, not the whole, not the whole shopping cart, like not the whole thing. Those are found in the family. When we obey Jesus and we live together as a family... The family is not lacking in any gift. This is how we display the beauty of the gospel and the goodness of our Father. And this design is for our good. But if you as a Christian choose to do life apart from our Father's family, or you just nominally participate in the life of the family, you attend but you don't engage, what this is telling us is you will be lacking. You will be missing the good gifts that our Father has given to us in the family. You won't receive the full benefit of the gifts that He has given. The abundance is not found in myself. The abundance of my Father's generosity is found in robust participation in the the life of our Father's abundantly gifted family. That's where it's found. All of these gifts are gifts that He has given to us now for our good and for His fame, but He also gives us future gifts. Notice the promise in verse 8. What does it say? Jesus will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Guys, Jesus is the source of our gifts, but he's also the sustainer. Jesus sustains his people all the way to the end. We are weak, but he is strong. We, look, the culture will tell you, you sustain and persevere by finding your own strength. The gospel says This is not how it's done. We don't sustain by becoming strong. We sustain, we persevere by acknowledging personal weakness and learning to live in the strength of Christ. And Jesus brings us all the way home. And check this out. He doesn't just bring us all the way home. When we get there, he gets us there guiltless. And this is the beautiful hope of the gospel, guys. You cannot get yourself to a guiltless point. You don't have the capacity for that. We can't make ourselves guiltless. And guys, Christians of all people are not innocent people. We are desperately guilty people. We are not good people. 
I'm sorry. We're, we're broken. We have our own rebellion. We're desperately guilty. We're not innocent. We're not guiltless. We are guilty in thought, word, and deed, but we receive guiltlessness as a gift received by faith in the words and works of Jesus. So when we are in Christ, he takes our guilt and he gives us his innocence. This is what is known as the great exchange. So now in Christ, by faith, at all times, even on your worst day, the Father looks at you and views you as guiltless because he's looking at you through the innocence of Jesus. So on every day, your worst days, if you have repented of your sin and turned to Jesus, the Father looks at you and views you as fully forgiven and fully accepted in Jesus. You have to know this is how he views you as a son or a daughter. On your worst day, on your worst day, I am fully forgiven and fully accepted. And Paul says, God is faithful. He has done it and he will do all of this. This is good news because we are faithless people, but he is the faithful father. He's the one who called us into the fellowship of his son, the shared life with Jesus and his family, and he will finish that work. And what do we do in all of this? Verse eight, we wait. We wait. We wait for the revealing of our King Jesus. Makes you feel uncomfortable, right? Because you're like, I just want to do something and waiting feels really passive, but I have good news for you in the New Testament and really all of the Bible. Waiting is not a passive activity. It's not. It's a very active activity. If you're reading from the, the NIV, what does it say? It actually says eagerly wait, like kind of aggressively wait. Give yourself an aggressive posture. So waiting on Jesus, we all wait on something. You're either waiting on Jesus or waiting on yourself or waiting on whatever is your God to give you what your heart longs for. We're all waiting all the time. We're all waiting. And so waiting on Jesus means we daily run to him. We grab on and we don't let go, especially when things in life are bad and life is dark and things don't make sense and we are hurt and we are angry and alone. You grab onto Jesus and you don't let go and you say to Jesus, you promised, you, you said the father was the faithful father. I don't see that faithfulness in my life right now, but I am not letting go until I do. Jesus, I believe, but I need you to help my unbelief. And we become who we are by looking to Jesus in this way as our source, our sustainer, and our savior. Don't do what the culture tells you to do. The culture tells you to look to yourself. The gospel tells you to look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. All right, let's wrap this first half of the chapter up. We'll conclude here in this section, beginning in verse 10 and finishing in verse 17. Paul writes, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people, like red flag, there should never be any subgroup in the life of the church like John's people, or the Dibbles people, or Grant's people, or any, like, no people. Like, that's a red flag that Paul's kind of giving us right there. Like, that's, that's not healthy. But Chloe's people showed up at Paul's house, and they're like, yo, Paul, we're not messed up, but a church is messed up, right? Because Chloe's people got there first, so they could give their side of the story. They said, hey, there's quarreling here. And what I mean is that each one of you says, hey, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, that's Peter, I follow Peter, or I follow Christ, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized into the name of Paul? Man, I thank God that I baptized none of you. Well, except Crispus and Gaius. Um, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. Well, I did baptize also the household of Stephanus, right? It's, it's his Joe Biden moment. Like, and I'm not picking on Biden, but like George Bush had his own moment like that too. Just He made the statement. He's like, well, I don't know, but well, I baptized you and I baptized you. But not the rest of you. Um, Beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized anyone else. So I'm just going to leave it at that. I don't know. You know, I don't know. Verse 17, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Guys, becoming who we are begins with uniting around Jesus, not dividing around favorite people. Let's just kind of unpack what was happening. In Corinth, a high value was placed on gaining a following through personality. Again, so striking to our own culture. So this is how it worked in politics. This is how it worked in entertainment, theater, rhetoric, you name it. It was just personality driven. 
And so the city population was already divided among so many lines. But here's another one, right? Fan, fan clubs would form around popular personalities in whatever discipline of life, you, whether it was athletics or arts, whatever. Um, it was personality-driven. And there was a particular category of people in Corinth. If you're a history buff, you know this. They're known as sophists, right? S-O-P-H-I-S-T-S, sophists. Um, sophists specialized in philosophy, rhetoric, and this is key, popular thought. Um, and so they got really good at using their personality and their charisma and their charm to win people over, right? So Corinth had sophists. We do too. They're usually called podcasters, right? Same demographic, really. Um, not just podcasters, though. Sophists, we have sophists. They're also called preachers or pastors who care more about followers, likes, platform, and fame than Jesus and his gospel. They're sophists, too. One historian characterized sophists this way, vain, self-sufficient, and get this, intoxicated by the wild enthusiasm of their followers. Right? Sophists. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Like there's our culture. There's our American idol. Uh, Britain's got talent. Like there's our culture. There's our culture. Intoxicated by the wild enthusiasm of followers. I get intoxicated when I break the 50 mark, like on my likes. Like I am intoxicated by the enthusiasm of my followers. That's just our heart. That's our heart. A guy named Seneca, who is also a historian, he wrote this. He's like, here's how public speaking worked in Corinth. The focus was to win appeal for yourself rather than the case. And what he's saying is the substance of what was said didn't really matter. And there, there's our political world. doesn't really matter what you say. The substance is not valued. The higher value um, among the public was in how the content was delivered. I want to see style. I want to see personality. I want to see charisma. And so Seneca continued, whenever this is the value of the culture, the casualty is always truth. We lose truth. The focus becomes the speaker and the casualty becomes the truth. Guys, like we are Corinth, like we are her sister city, 2,000 years removed. And so this cultural dynamic, which served as another fracture point in the city, had infected the church and was fracturing her too. And the casualty was Jesus and the truth of his gospel because the focus was on the speaker and his personality and his charisma. Like, hey, entertain me. Are you not entertained? Like, that was the attitude. And that's what Paul's talking about right here in verse 10. Not that the leaders were this way. He, he wasn't indicting himself and Apollos and Cephas and definitely not Jesus. But what he's saying is this. He's imploring the church to agree with each other, to be united, and to stop being divided. And what was killing their unity in this case? What was the source of their division? Well, verse 11, Chloe's people said, um, hey, we are arguing over which pastor was best. That's what's going on in Corinth. Some only wanted Paul. Why? Paul was the church planner. He started it. He's older. He had wisdom. He'd proved himself for 18 months. Like, we want some Paul. But Paul self-discloses throughout the letter. He wasn't really polished in his speaking. He was older. Uh, he wasn't everything that a lot of people want in a pastor. He wasn't young, and he didn't have charisma. So then Apollos came along. He was the second pastor. You know what Apollos was? Young and gifted, and charismatic. And so there were people in the church who were like, oh man, we just want, forget Paul, he's old and he's done. We want relevant skinny jean Apollos. He's younger and more dynamic. So people would prefer him and they'd only listen to him and follow his lead, while others only wanted Peter. Peter probably visited on a handful of occasions, kind of like as a guest speaker when Apollos was out of town, he'd speak. Or as a visiting evangelist, if you come from the Southern culture, you got the week-long revival, you bring in Peter for the fire. Like Peter was your Paul washer, like he would lay it down hard and get you laughing and then be like, I don't know why you're laughing, I'm talking about you. Like that's, that was Peter, that was Peter. So people, there were some people who just wanted Peter, while others... Others said, hey, we follow Christ. And that sounds good, right? That's what we want. Like, we kind of want to hear everybody saying that here. But this was not said from a posture of humility. This statement was said in pride. Basically, they're saying, well, we reject Paul. We reject Apollos. Peter's no good. And everybody else, too. We're better. Your guys don't measure up. Like, we're just Jesus purists. Like, you can hear people say this when they're like, well, I'm not really anything. I'm just a biblicist. Like, I just, whatever the Bible says, like, you're wrong in all your theological categories. But like, Jesus and I, I just need Jesus. Like, that's all I need. So this is being said from a position of, of pride. And so Paul asks a question. He says, guys, is Christ divided? 
No, ordinarily, the answer to that question would be no. Like Christ is not divided, but in Corinth, the answer is actually yes. Christ is divided in the church in Corinth. Christ is divided in any church infected by the same cultural value. Christ is divided when we unite around specific leaders, preaching, teaching styles, music styles, and secondary theological categories rather than uniting around Jesus and his gospel. And that's exactly what our hearts tend to do. When we idolize people, we divide Christ and his family. The casualty is unity and the truth of the gospel. Like, man, how do we do that here? We don't do that here. It's really subtle. We do it. Uh, We do it in every community. But here's what it might look like in a church or in a church like ours, just to give some specifics. Let's talk missional communities. Well, I can really only go to a missional community led by David Sutherland. I can't. I mean, the other elders of the other missional community leaders are good, but Dave just really gets it. Like, it's either Dave or nothing for me. That would be an example. I need David in my life. Uh, Ladies, we could do it here. Man, that next Bible study sounds like it's going to be really good. I wonder who's teaching. Oh, she's teaching that. I thought Liz Robb or Rachel Pittman would be teaching. I think I'm busy and I can't can't tend. Christ is divided. The family is divided. Music. Well, I can really only sing along with Grant. He gets me at a soul level. I like his voice. And others of you are like, man, but Jeff Hill's more traditional with the songs he picks. Um, I want Jeff. Well, others of you are like, where'd that lady go that we had a couple weeks ago? What was her name? Sarah Hamilton. Like, she was great. Uh, she's space in around the world right now, just, just by the way. But like, we want her. I can't really, when I come to church, I can't really sing along if it's somebody, it needs to be this person. Christ is divided. The church is divided. Hey, when's the next Sunday that John's not preaching? <laughs> I think I'll use that opportunity to go to Okuma with the family. He's not preaching. We won't miss anything. Um, We'll go to Okuma. Or, man, John again, like, does he ever take a break? Like, couldn't we cycle somebody else up there? Like, all he does is stand there and read from notes. We hardly ever get high contact. Um, Give me Simberger. Like, I want John Simberger. Christ is divided, and the family is divided. We do this mostly with Christian famous people. Um, I don't know who your favorite is, and this is not an exhaustive list, and some of you won't recognize any people on this, on this list, and that's fine. It doesn't make you a mature Christian or not, but these are just some popular names. Chandler, Dever, Jen Wilkin, Francis Chan, John Piper, John MacArthur, Jefferson Bethke, Beth Moore, David Platt, Stephen Furtick, Tabidi, I can't say his last name, but you should check him out. Tabidi, Anwabili, something like that. Eric Mason. We even do it with dead Christians. Luther, I'm a Calvinist. I'm an Arminian, like, right? We do it with dead Christians. We idolize and we divide. We think we're better than other people because of who we podcast or listen to. You know what Luther, Luther actually talked about this. You know what he said? This is what Luther said. He's like, man, the teaching is not mine, nor was I crucified for anyone. So how did I, poor, Luther had this way of talking of himself. So he goes, how did I, poor stinking bag of maggots that I am, come to the point where people call the children of Christ by my evil name? You know where Luther got that quote though from? It's right here. Like Paul already said it. Paul, Paul asked, was Paul crucified uh, for you? Were you baptized into Paul's name? Was Ron Coya crucified for you? Were you baptized into, I don't know, we just pick on a whole bunch, Grant Ellis's name? Like, did Chandler hang on the cross for you? Are you a disciple of Francis Chan or of Jesus Christ? No, none of these guys, none of these women were crucified for us. We were not baptized into any of their names. You were not baptized into my name, for sure, and that's good. We were baptized into the name of Jesus. Jesus was crucified for me, and so he deserves my ultimate and undivided loyalty, no one else. Uh, We were baptized into the name of Jesus. He deserves my followership. You know, I realized I was guilty. We're guilty of this all the time, but you know when I first realized that this was serious for me? I'd be podcasting from a well-known church. I won't tell you the name, uh, but the Village Church. And and so Matt Chandler would be preaching, and I'd listen to his sermon. But you know what? If I saw the podcast pop up, and he'd taken a break or he's on vacation, I'd skip it for the week. You know who I was following? Matt Chandler. You know who I was not following? Jesus. You know who I cared about? You know whose voice I wanted to hear shape my life? Matt Chandler. 
not Jesus. You see how subtle that can be? So what matters? What matters is this. Is the person leading, teaching, worshiping, leading us in worship, whatever, are they faithfully pointing me to Jesus and his gospel? If the answer is yes, everything else, especially style, charisma, personality, um, and ability, is a distant, distant second. And so an increasingly gospel-shaped heart and church says, I am willing to be led by any qualified person who faithfully points me to Jesus and his gospel, no matter the style, charisma, personality, or fame. And you know what? Give me somebody who does not have a recognized name and let them lead me to Jesus so I'm not distracted by who they are or the gifts they have. Give me an average gifted person to point me to Jesus. That's what a gospel-shaped heart says. Just give me Jesus and his gospel. In fact, we should have multiple and diverse voices pointing to me, or pointing me to Jesus, not just one. I would encourage you, if you are on a steady diet of a singular, single podcast, or you only buy books from one person, you need to fast from that person's voice and take a break from that person's book. And you need some gospel diversity in your life so that multiple voices from different perspectives are pointing you to the one voice that matters, Jesus. Guys, we are God's united family in the fractured cities of Kadena, Foster, Lester, Kinzer, Fatema, Hanson, Courtney, Shields, Chibana. I already said Hanson, but it's really broken. So Hanson, Schwab, and Okinawa. It matters deeply that we become who the Father says that we are in Christ. It matters for his fame on this island, and it matters for the good of the people who live in these broken places. Because if the culture of our church is shaped by the cultural voices around us, If it's shaped by our own voices, we will have nothing of beauty to offer the people who live in these broken cities. But as our our culture is shaped by Jesus, we will have the beauty of the gospel, which is life itself, to hold up for these people. So guys, are we becoming who the Father says that we are? Let's consider that as we pray in closing. Father, thank you for your grace. Uh, We're saints, we're your kids, we're your sons and daughters. That is who we are, but we have a long, long way to grow up into that identity. So Father, give us humility. Pray that you would drown out the other voices in our lives and help us to listen to the voice of Jesus. Father, eradicate division from the life of this church. Not because we care about us necessarily, but the last thing we want to do is is to do anything that would bring discredit to your name. The last thing that we want to do is do anything that would veil the beauty of the gospel to the people around us who so desperately need a different voice than the voice of the culture that just keeps ringing in their ears, offering life but delivering death. Jesus, humble us, eradicate that division, unite us around Jesus, and help us to press forward together in our gospel identity. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you.